Well, let's get into the Word. Um, I'm going to go ahead and open in prayer, prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this night. And God, we thank you for our independence, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful country that you've gifted to us, Lord, by your grace. Lord, forgive us for the missteps we've taken. Forgive us for the sinful things we've endorsed. But Lord, we just pray that you would anoint us with power by your Holy Spirit to share the gospel, Lord. Help us not to forget that every generation needs to be reached. It's not just reaching one and then being done, Lord. We, we have to be consistent as your church and faithful. So we thank you for that, Lord. Bless this time in your word as we look at the redemption that you've poured out for us. Apply it to us, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was uh, reading a, um, well, if you ever go to a funeral, you might see this on the little uh, order of worship or uh, the little uh, handout you get at funerals. Often you see different poems and whatnot. But there's a very famous poem that, poem that you will see more often than not. In fact, this poem, I'm pretty sure everybody knows. It's by an American poet, poet named Robert Frost. And uh, it's, uh, it's called The Road Not Taken. And you may be familiar with it, but if you won't, let me just read part of it. It says, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads to unto way, I doubted it if I should ever come back. I shall be telling, telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I took, I, I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. Sorry, I didn't read that too well, but... Um, Robert Frost wrote this based on his friendship with Tom, Edward Thomas, an English poet. Edward Thomas was actually, both of them at the time were struggling, trying to get their careers launched. They were working, um, it was about 1914, Robert Frost had actually moved from America, from New Hampshire, to England. He had met Edward Thomas there. Uh, he was actually hoping to relaunch his career. He hadn't been very successful here in the U.S., and so he would go on these long walks with his friend Edward Thomas. And Edward Thomas would, as they were hiking around and choosing which way they would go, they would never take a map. And they would just kind of look for, for uh, where the sun was, the position of the sun, or, or any major landmarks as they were walking around on these hikes. Edward Thomas would always kind of have a sigh saying, hey, let's go this way. And it, it didn't end up being what he would hope it would be. It was, he always thought that maybe the payoff will be greater if we go this way. And turns out that road wasn't so great and he'd sigh and like, oh, we chose the wrong one this, this time. Well, he, he was just a person that was always very indecisive, Edward Thomas. In fact, for, for a long time, England had just entered into the, world, world, the Great War, World War I. And for a long time he kept talking to Robert Frost about how he's not sure if he could just go by not entering into this world while Englishmen were fighting. He didn't care much for the politics, but, but maybe I should go into this war, maybe I shouldn't. So Robert Frost, when he moved back to, to the U.S., kept his, his um, uh, letter writing with Edward Thomas. 
And as they were, they had this correspondence going, uh, he wrote this poem, The Road Not Taken, and he sent it to Edward Thomas just kind of as a, a, a jest, just, just a joke. Of course, nowadays when we read this poem, it's like, wow, it's so significant. Well, he never intended it to be a significant poem. He never intended it to be something that we would we would think about deeply, that we would, we would like look at our lives and go, okay, did I make the right choice or the wrong choice? But Edward Thomas was so offended by it. He was so upset that he went and joined, signed up and left for the war. And unfortunately, he only made it two months in France before he, he was killed. Um, and of course, in America, as people read this poem and they started thinking about decision making, we all identified with it, the, the road not taken. Well, I stood at this this place where the two roads went off, which decision is the right decision? Which is the decision that has the best payoff, the, the best view, the, 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 the right decision? We always want to make the right decision. Well, i got to say that tonight we're in that very same place in Mark's gospel where we're going to see decisions being made about our Lord Jesus Christ. And these decisions can have a terrible payoff if, the, if you're wrong. When it comes to Jesus Christ, we want to make the right decision. And that's what we're going to see as we get into the text tonight. That we're, we stand at a crossroads. And that crossroads will be whether you'll receive him or reject him. Whether you'll choose him as Lord or liar. Or maybe even lunatic. Where do you stand on this crossroads and which road will you take? So let's start at Mark 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Let me just set the scene here. If you remember last week, we read through 14, Mark 14. And in Mark 14, we had the actual betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. How he was arrested in the middle of the night and taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know about the situation and the culture going on. And I think it will shed a lot of light into what's happening here. You and I are mostly familiar with this story of the crucifixion. In the trial, but maybe you're not familiar with the cultural um, rules and laws that were going on, and why we can see that this trial is such a sham. It's a complete mistrial. There's no way that this should have happened. The first thing is, was when they arrested Jesus. There, there's two rules that they're following here. The Jews. First thing is that what we call the Torah or the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's what they call the Torah. The whole Old Testament would be called the Tanakh. Uh, but but the, the law is what, in the law it states that, that there, someone can't be convicted without a testimony of two or two, at least two witnesses. And if you remember, remember last week when we read in Mark 14, that their witnesses couldn't agree. They all kept bringing up all these things. Oh, no, he said this. No, he said this. And, and the witnesses weren't even agreeing when they arrested him. The other thing that they, the Jews had that they, they would... Um, look as a rule for their life, faith, and practice was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was the oral law or oral traditions. And that would be the, 
the Jews expounding upon what the law said, the Torah said. So they would expound upon that, and that's where we get their, their rules for ceremonial washings and cleanings. But with that, there's rules for how to conduct a trial. And the first thing is capital cases were to be tried during the daytime only, and the verdict must be reached during the daytime. And we're, what we're going to see is Jesus goes through actually six trials, starting with his arrest. He goes first to the, the court of uh, Caiaphas, the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and we see that the first one to question him is Annas, Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was the high priest before, who's never really relinquished it. He's kind of pulling the strings. Then Caiaphas questions him, the high priest, the actual high priest. Then the Sanhedrin questioned Jesus. That's the third trial. Then they'll send him to Pilate. Pilate will question him, but decide, I don't really want any part of this, and send him to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas will look at him like a circus performer and go, perform some miracle, do something special. I just want to see you do something cool. And when he realizes Jesus won't do anything cool, Herod Antipas says, I don't want him, and he sends him back over to Pilate. So Jesus is going to endure six trials, but under the Jewish law, they couldn't start this trial in the middle of the night. But here we see they do it at nighttime when the crowds won't get stirred up. The number two thing about the, that the Mishnah says about it is trials were not to be conducted on a Sabbath eve or the eve of a festival day. Do you remember why they wanted to arrest Jesus quickly? The Bible said because Passover was coming and they didn't want to do it during the festival. So here they are doing it. They're arresting Jesus on the eve of a festival. Capital cases were supposed to begin with reasons for acquittal and not with reasons for conviction. It's another issue that, that they completely broke and ignored. Another rule that they had was verdicts of acquittal could be reached on the same day, but verdicts of conviction must be confirmed on the following day after a night's sleep. They were breaking all their own laws. They were throwing out all their traditions and all their laws to murder Jesus Christ. Or I should say, Jesus the Christ. They were, they were breaking all their own laws. They were, they were just throwing it all away to get this guy dead. This opponent. This one who stirred the crowds up. The one who overturned the, temple ta the tables of the temple. You know, we've seen this before. When people were willing to sacrifice or to, to betray themselves and their laws and their traditions. And, and it always comes when truth is not the utmost importance. It's always when an agenda is pursued and not truth. Another thing that they broke was the mission assumes that the Sanhedrin met in the inner courts of the temple. The chamber of hewn stone, not in the high priest's home. This was never to be done in the high priest's home. And by the way... The high priests were never allowed to question the person on trial. Everything that happened in this trial so far was a complete sham. This, was, this wasn't a real trial. It, it, this was a mockery of all their laws and traditions, yet they pursued it. And they take him to Pilate first thing in the morning. Now remember from Mark 14 what they accused him of? They accused Jesus in Mark 14 of being the Messiah, claiming he was the, the Messiah and the Son of God. That's what, remember, they ripped their, clo their clothes 
and, and they well, they, they're so offended and incensed by his blasphemy. Remember, what they, that's what they said, you're a blasphemer. But that's not what they report to Pilate. You see, the Jews didn't have the power anymore to convict somebody to capital punishment. They didn't have the power to put somebody to death. Only the Romans could do that, and only the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate happened to be in town for the Passover. He, normally, Pilate was a governor in Caesarea, Caesarea. Uh, but he would come in for festivals and big days because he, just in case some sort of upheaval or uh, uprival came or uh, any type of uh, revolt, he, he was there to deal with it. But Pilate himself was on shaky ground with Rome. You see, in Pilate's history, he was, he was put into power as governor over G- Judea by a guy named Sinjaeus. Sinjaeus was kind of a co-emperor to Tiberius. Tiberius was the actual emperor of Rome. And Tiberius had kind of gotten fed up with the governing aspect. He didn't want to really do much of the governing. So he had actually gone to a, a retirement home, so to speak, and been just kind of living out in retirement. And Sinjaeus was given authority to govern. So he's made kind of co-emperor. Well, as soon as Tiberius found out that Sinjaeus had actually planned this revolt and to get rid of Tiberius altogether, Tiberius acted, killed Sanjaeus, and then he was going through finding out who was actually loyal to him of all of Sanjaeus' governors and who wasn't. And he was getting rid of people. So for Pilate, this was a huge deal. Pilate was like, I want to make sure Tiberius knows I'm, I'm for him. I'm on his side. Because he was put into power by Sanjaeus. So Pilate actually erected a temple in Caesarea to the emperor Tiberius, which uh, it was actually against Roman law, but it was like, a, hey, I'm for you. Um, and Because and, uh, Tiberius had told people he didn't want temples erected to him. So Pilate himself was on shaky ground. And when we understand this backstory, it helps us understand why the trial went the way it did. So they showed up first thing in the morning. And they tell, they tell Pilate, hey, this guy says he's king of the Jews. Not that he's blasphemy. Not that he's Messiah. They say, he says he's king of the Jews. Why is that so important? Well, Josephus, the historian, records that lots of, of revolts were started by these zealots, Jews. And they would often say, we're, I'm king of the Jews. And they would raise up and they'd try to overthrow Rome. But they would all be slaughtered. Uh, Pilate was a merciless guy. He was a terrible guy who the Jews feared. But these revolts would, would act up and they'd say, I'm the king of the Jews. And so when, when the chief priest and the high priest took Jesus before Pilate, they said, hey, this guy says he's king of the Jews. Pilate said, are you king of the Jews? Are you coming against Rome? Are you starting the next revolt against Rome? Because if you are, you're a dead man. That's just it. Jesus said, you've said it so. You've said so. (laughs) Interesting answer, isn't it? It's not, yes, I am. No, I'm not. Just, you've said it. (laughs) That's what you say. (laughs) Is this from you or not? uh, Pilate uh, (laughs) again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Well, it's really the only one, the one charge that he can deal with. He's not going to deal with any of the religious charges. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Let's go to verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now, let me just pause there. 
between 5 and 6, the other Gospels fill in that Pilate sent Jesus away to Herod. Herod said, show me a magic trick. That's why I really want to see a sign. Do some sort of sign. I want to see something. Jesus did nothing. And Herod sends Jesus back over to Pilate. So that's where we're at with verse 6. So now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to... Sorry, I lost my place. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is so terrible what's happening here. As Jesus is put back before Pilate... Pilate himself is recognizing, well, one Pilate doesn't even care one way or the other what happens. But he's at least recognizing that this is completely out of envy that you guys want me to put him to death. He recognizes that. He recognizes that they've got no grounds to ask for this. But he's also terrified of some sort of Jewish revolt that he can't handle. He's terrified of the people. You know, when Pilate first came into power... One of the things he did was, in, in, under night, he brought in all these Roman flags with Roman gods on them and brought them into Jerusalem. And he thought that, okay, I'm going to sneak all these flags into Jerusalem, and then I'm going to threaten the people. If they, don't, if they don't bow down to these flags and worship these pl- flags, we're going to kill them. Well, the Jews ended up putting their necks on the Roman blades. The Jews went and put their necks on the blades and said, then kill me. I'm not going to worship these flags. Pilate realizing that, oh man, I'm going to end up slaughtering all of Jerusalem if I go through with this plan back down. So he was always trying to keep the peace of Jerusalem and Judea and at the same time assert his authority. So as the chief priests there come to him, they start asking for them to release a prisoner. Now this comes from back before the Romans had actually conquered Jerusalem. And this is just the tradition that the Romans kept of them releasing a prisoner. So he figures, Pilate figures, okay, I'll I'll offer Barabbas, who's actually a murderer. Barabbas, who is an insurrectionist. Barabbas, and we're not really sure a lot about Barabbas. We just know that uh, a little bit about what the other extra-biblical historians say and what the other um, gospels say about Barabbas. But, But we know that he was actually guilty of murder. We know that. We know that he was a thief. And we know that he had led a revolt. He was the... The, the actual criminal that Jesus was being accused of, all these crimes that Jesus was being accused of, Barabbas had actually been done. And it's interesting, the name that the Gospels give him, it just means son of Abba, son of the Father. So we're not really sure if that was his actual name or they're, they're, his name was something else and they were just say, he was giving that name to Rome. We, we don't really know. But notice what happens. Rather than crying out for the righteous man, the crowd begins 
to cry out for the criminal. It's total injustice. It's complete injustice. And I think you and I can identify with things like that. When the truth isn't sought after, it's really the crowd that's moving people. And whenever the crowd gets loud and the crowd starts crying out, often it's not about justice. It's about that mob mentality. And we've seen it. We've seen it recently in the U.S. with the, some of these riots that have happened. We, we've seen this mentality where, where they're not seeking justice. They're seeking what they want. And we should, be, we should be really concerned about that. So Pilate again says, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? <laughs> the Jews asked that question. What are we going to do with Jesus? How are we going to trap him? That was the, they stand at the crossroads. Are we going to receive him as Messiah or are we going to reject him? Let's reject him and murder him. They made their decision. They want to they ki- kill him. That, that's clearly. Man, that's still, that question is, is still being asked today. What do we do with Jesus? It's a timeless question. There's people in our country that let's put Jesus to death. Let's, let's kill the Bible. Let's do whatever we can to push it out of our sight. Because the fact is I don't like what the Bible teaches about sin. I want to do what I want to do. Did you know that the first communion, or the first time we stepped on the moon with Buzz Aldrin, he took communion? Did you know that? Buzz Aldrin, when he landed on the moon, he was asked not to read scripture this time because of the Apollo 8 mission. That in, the, in the Apollo 8 mission, they read scripture, they read from Genesis, and Madame Murray O'Hare had a lawsuit against NASA for reading scripture. Madame Murray O'Hare, you know, the, the one who, who was driving the uh, abortion and uh, being legalized. She was so incensed by them reading scripture that she had a lawsuit going, so NASA said, please don't read scripture out loud. So Buzz Aldrin asked for a moment of silence. And during that moment of silence, Buzz Aldrin took out, he, he took communion and he read from John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he, and he read this during this moment of silence on the moon. That's what was happening on the moon. Man, the world hates Jesus. They hate him. The Jews hated Jesus. And they rejected him. That was what, what are you going to do with this Jesus? I'm going to try to kill him. So what is Pilate going to do? Pilate asks the same question. What do you want me to do with him? And, and of course, Pilate kind of says it in a way that's antagonistic. What do you want me to do with this king of the Jews? Because he, he hates the Jews, period. He's not a fan of them. And, um, and so they just start yelling out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why what evil has he done? Notice there's no answer. <laughs> when you ask a crowd who's incensed by the truth for an answer, they, they, they don't give you a good answer. What do they do? They get louder. That's what they do. They just get louder. They just start yelling more. There's no actual answer. There's no good argument for why Jesus should be crucified. It's just crucify him. We're just going to get louder until you'll do what we say. Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Be careful, dear Christians, of looking to pacify the crowds. I hope you won't do what Pilate does. 
Whereas the crowd yells all the more, you're going to say, yeah, well, I just want to join the crowd. I just want to be part of the crowd. I'm willing to reject Jesus. What should I do with Jesus? I'm going to reject him. Because the crowd's all saying reject him. So I'm jumping in with the crowd. (laughs) If you reject him before men, he rejects you before the Father. If you accept him before men, he accepts you before the Father. Don't reject him because of the crowd. I'll tell you right now, the crowd is going to get loud. The crowd is going to say, we have kids in the youth group who, they've been undergoing being called bigots at school for their position on on, um, homosexuality and same-sex marriage. It's not a bigotry issue. It's a biblical issue. It's not bigotry. It's not, it, for some reason it's been co- compared with the civil rights movement. But the crowd will get louder. And, and if they really wanted the truth, if they really wanted the love of the gospel, and I, and I keep saying this, the gospel is about reconciliation to God. It's not about a particular sin. It's about man being restored and reconciled to God. But we have kids in the youth group that have been called bigots for it. And you know what? I'm really happy that they're not just trying to pacify a crowd. I'm happy that they're willing to say, no, this is what I believe. Now, maybe they're not great at articulating their arguments. You know, I'm not sure about that. But the fact is, is be careful when you're starting to join the crowd. Because the crowd never looks for truth. The crowd just looks for what they want. Pilate says, okay, fine, I'll pacify thee. So he releases Barabbas. Now, I want you just to step back from this whole scene and see what's going on. Jesus is dying for Barabbas. Jesus is taking the punishment of Barabbas for, on himself. He's being put in the man of the wicked man. Well, well, let's step back a little bit further and realize that this is what Jesus is doing for the whole world at this very moment. That's, that's right. It's for Pilate. It's for the Sanhedrin. It's for Caiaphas. It's for all these men that are going to wickedly abuse him and torture him. It's for Peter, the one who just denied him. It's for the disciples who all fled. Jesus is going undergoing this, this shame. He's undergoing this death and this torture for all of these people, the people who are actually torturing him. It says they scour- scourged him. Oh, this is awful. And Forgive me, I'm going to share a little bit about what this is. But when you read the historical accounts from Josephus and Philo about what the scourging was like, this cat of nine tells with these, these ribbons coming off of it with bone and copper and brass mixed into it. And as it would hit the flesh, it would drag across and strip the flesh into ribbons. And, in fact, there's even accounts of every now and then the, the, uh, when they would scourge somebody, it would whip around, hit someone's eye, and pull the eye right out. I mean, it's terrible, and I'm sorry for being gruesome about it, but this is terrible. Jesus endured this for these people. You know, for the Christian, I think this is a challenge for us. Because the Bible tells us we should have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6 real fast. This is what it says. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 700 years prior to Jesus, this prophecy is given. I gave my back to those who strike. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Share this attitude with Christ. And here's what it is. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To the Christian, we're told, have this very same attitude, this very same mind. Share this mind with Jesus Christ. What mind, what mind is that? Well, we remember Jesus and Mark saying, unless a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he can't be part of me. Have this, share this very same mind. Sadly, in the church, a lot of the times Christians go, well, I, I'm, I'm okay with opposition from the unbelievers. That's okay. But don't bring opposition from within the church. You know, when a believer acts up or a, a believer acts like a sinner, because the fact is we're all sinners. I know this is probably a surprise, but, you know, some of us have this mentality that they're finished. And uh, that's not the case. But when believers act like sinners, other believers get so offended by it. Like, oh, you can't act that way. And they start causing division and all sorts of problems. And you're just like, what about the mind of Christ? Do you share the attitude of Christ? And this is kind of a personal thing for me lately. As I was reading this, I've been dealing with some things in the church. Being the assistant pastor, I usually get to deal with all the stuff that like nobody wants to deal with. So they're like, let Dave deal with it. But I'm just kidding about that. Um, <laughs> but, but I deal with a lot of these sorts of things. And the sad part about it is lately I've been dealing with an issue between believers. And one believer is just so incensed by this other believer that they're, we're leaving the church. We're packing up. They're sending emails out to people. And I'm just like, why are you doing that? What part of the gospel does it say if someone offends you, send out emails, notify everybody, and take off? That's not what Jesus Christ teaches. That's not what the New Testament teaches we're supposed to be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. How is it that we can reconcile an unbelieving, ungodly world to God and we can't reconcile within the church? How is it that marriages get to the point of unreconcilable differences in the church? How is that? It shouldn't be so, dear Christians. I, I Twice in the last month, I've heard from married couples that are being divorced, grievances, they're going through divorce, and I've asked them, I said, well, you know, here's what the Bible teaches on divorce, and I'll sit down and talk with them about the biblical teaching on divorce, and they say, so, and they both say the same thing, so I'm just supposed to have a life of suffering now? I don't know. I mean, to me, I'd rather trust God and see what God's going to do and wait on him to do something awesome than walk by sight. Yeah, you know, you may have to endure some suffering. But you chose to follow Jesus. He endured from sinners this opposition. <laughs> He's being whipped, beaten, mocked, teased killed, murdered by ungodly people for them. That is the mind of Christ. That is the attitude of Christ. That should be the attitude of the church. The attitude of the church is never, let's huddle up 
Let's build up our fortress. Let's stay out, you know, keep everybody out. Oh, you're not being nice. You're out of here too, you know. That's not the church. The church is about reconciliation. That's what we want to be about. And I hope I can encourage you with that. What should I do with this Jesus? Well, my position is make him Lord and then be obedient to that Lord. I don't know what your position will be. Maybe your position will be reject him. Maybe your position will be kill him. Maybe your position will be crucify him. Maybe your position will be like part-time friend with him. I don't know. But I hope you'll choose make him Lord because he died for you. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, the entire battalion. And, and, uh, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and split, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to be crucified. him. This is Jesus. My friend John Wallace who's putting on this conference, um, when he left the Mormon church, he wanted nothing to do with any, anything religious. And uh, he just went, went his own way. But he told me when he watched The Passion of the Christ, the movie by Mel Gibson, there was, I don't know, it's probably been 10 years now since it came out. But when he watched that movie, he realized, I can't believe what, what he's endured for me. I, I'm so amazed by what he's done for me. I wonder, has the crowd done something for you lately? Have they? Does, does the crowd have your best interest in mind? Is, is the crowd willing to die for you on your behalf? Are they willing to step in and say, I'll, I'll take your penalty? <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. The crowd comes and goes. And I'll tell you right now, if you match yourself up with the crowd, you'll constantly be chasing the crowd versus them supporting you. It's just the way it goes. The crowd's not going to stand in your place. The crowd's not worried about you being reconciled. The crowd's not willing to, worried about you being healed. Jesus Christ is. Let's look at Hebrews real quick, what this says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you enduring from sinners? Maybe they're sinners in the church, but they're still sinners. Are you enduring hostility from sinners? Maybe you are. Well, this is what the author of Hebrews tells us to do. When we're enduring, maybe you're even enduring in a broken up marriage. Maybe if you're enduring, this is what we're told to do. Consider Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amazing how Jesus Christ on that cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know what the response was of one of his crucifiers? The Roman soldier, we'll read it next week, but I can't wait till next week. It's like, oh, I got to tell you, surely this man was the son of God. As he sees that love being poured out on that cross, that's the response. Christians, I encourage you to endure. Endure like your Lord has done. Endure. And when, you're, when you feel like you can't endure anymore, look to Jesus. Consider him. Have the same mindset involved. We need to be active in reconciling this world to Christ. And 
Of course, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I ask you that same question. What will you do with this man you call the King of the Jews? What will you do with him? It is an act of God's grace every time you hear his gospel. The good news that Christ is reconciling the world to, to God it is an act of his grace. Each and every individual in this room, if you're hearing this message tonight, that Jesus Christ died for you on that cross, it is an act of God's grace allowing you to hear his good news. It's always an act. It's a, it's a petition on behalf of God to be reconciled to him to be forgiven of sins, to come bow down at the, at the cross and say, Lord, I'm yours. I accept what you've done for me. I'm ready to follow you. It's an absolute act of his mercy and grace to you. And I hope that you'll choose wisely as you stand at the crossroads. As Robert Frost said on that, in the end of the poem, and I know he didn't intend to mean this, but I can't help but think of the gospel when we stand looking at Wide is the road to destruction, narrow is the road to eternal life. And as he says, two roads diversion a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I guarantee you, I can promise you, I can assure you, if you take the narrow road, it will make all the difference in the world for your eternity. And actually, even for the temporal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your, <laughs> for your good news, Lord. Amazing, God, that as you saw the wickedness of men and how they mistreated your son, you were patient with us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you had this love for us. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you endured for our sake. Lord, I thank you that even today you endure with us, Lord, as we say slanderous things or blasphemous things or things that are against you, Lord, you still wait for us to open the door. If there's anyone in this room tonight who's ready to make their decision about Jesus Christ, ready to kneel down to the cross and say, I'm yours, Lord, come into my life, just pray this prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I repent of it now and I turn to you. Help me to follow you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.